And so uh, what we've done today is we have two preachers, and I'm going to introduce them and tell you the story. But first, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and that's where we're going to launch today. Our first preacher today, and you have sermon notes in your bulletin, and, uh, and they tell a little bit of the story here too. Our first preacher today is Zach Harding. Zach is a longtime member and deacon here with lovely family, wife Christina, kids Dane, Sydney, and Reagan. He's an Army veteran. And then with that hard and well-earned maturity that comes from being an Army veteran, he then went and completed his Master's of Business Administration at Grace College and became a top manager at Maple Leaf Farms. He transitioned last year from there to making a difference in young people's lives by becoming a teacher at Warsaw High School. And he's a finisher of last year's men's leadership class. And uh, because we only had one, one man this year ready to preach, uh, and because Zach is not finished preaching the word, in fact, no, he wants to follow the Lord and continue to improve and grow in preaching and teaching. And he's got good things to say. God has blessed him and blessed us this morning uh, with the message that he has from God's word. Zach, would you come once again and challenge us? Thank you. Thanks, George. Good morning. Am I talking about sports? No. <laughs> if, uh, if you take the average American and sell everything they have, we'll leave them with one set of clothes and an empty stomach. But you take everything they own, you sell it, you pay off all their debts, all their liabilities. Uh, what you have left over is their net worth. And to the average American, if you melt that down and put it into a piece of gold, that's what it looks like. Not very flattering for your life accomplishments, is it? It's about as flattering as that dash between the dates on our tombstones, isn't it? If you're, again, worldly successful, more successful than average, which isn't bad. This is not um, saying don't be successful. But if your net worth is between five and 600000 you get a softball of gold and a bigger dash. And if you're sitting around $3 million or so, you'd get about this Tupperware worth. But as convenient as these packages are, you still can't take them with you, can you? Nope. So what we're going to talk about today, as Reg pointed out in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, is we're going to look at denying ourselves um, through the lens of wealth and material possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Denying self, putting God and others first, regarding ourselves as Christ regarded himself while he walked the earth, is a key aspect in our walk with Christ. Whether in our marriages, raising our children, our relationships, work, 
But today, through the lens of denying self, we will study wealth and material possessions. If not answer, we will at least examine what is rich and wealthy in the eyes of the world. Does the word of God truly endorse material wealth for personal gratification under the new covenant? And what does it look like to deny ourselves in regards to wealth? See, wealth, vanity, and tithing are much like any other sin. In the flesh, we can be caught in the traps of looking for that check mark or gaining approval from a fallen world. What is the minimum I have to do? What level, teacher, will clear my conscience in order for me to pursue the rest of my ambitions? That, this is why today there is such a heavy tilt towards the Old Testament men, such as Job, Solomon, King David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, to justify not only wealth, but wealthy and prideful living, sometimes under the guise of God's blessing and good stewardship. Also heavenly leaned on is the 10% Levitical rule within most messages of tithing, because you can see it gives us both. We get to give and we get to live our lives as we want. But God knows our tendencies in wealth. It's displayed in the word. In Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 14, Moses warns, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, full bellies, you have built good houses and have lived in them. Build a good house, time has passed. And when your herds and your flock multiply, material possessions, and your silver and gold multiply, savings accounts, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Fast forward, one of the final messages written to the churches by our Lord and Savior, Revelation three fifteen to 21. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The enemy, Zach will expand on this, the enemy reinforces God's warnings if we pay attention. As Satan tried tempting Christ and tempting Job to curse God with the addition or subtraction of sustenance and material possessions. Can we agree that Satan would only bring his best material to these two events? This displays our need to be aware of our weaknesses and self-examine often through the lens of the spirit and the word, which is our goal today. Matthew 19.23 says, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Pastor Reg pointed out a couple weeks ago in Luke 18.25, Jesus stated it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. Impossible for man, but not for God. 
So why is it hard? Because as we saw in the warnings that we just read, and also Luke 8.14 says, we may be choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Luke 6.24, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. So what do we do with these warnings? Why should we pay attention to them? The first question we're going to answer is, what is rich and wealthy? Have we correctly identified rich in the eyes of the world, history, and our Lord? Are rich and wealthy relative to time? Matthew 6.31 says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink and what will we wear? Serious question. When was the last time any of you worried about food, water, or clothing? If you are worried about these things, please see a deacon or a leader or a friend in the body because they will be gladly provided. But the majority of Americans today are not concerned with these three items. As Pastor Reg also pointed out in Memorial Day weekend, hardly anybody in this country is poor, and I would say perhaps few to the extent of the poor people in the time of, at the time that Christ walked in the flesh. So where are our Lazaruses? For another view, the U.S. on the left is 4.34% of the world population. We hold 25.4% of the world wealth. Go ahead and go to the next slide. 10% of the world, or nearly, uh, let's say 800, 800 million, three, almost three times the population of the U.S., lives on less than $800 a year. To give another perspective, 12.4% of the U.S. receives food stamps. And the total program output is 108 billion and serves roughly 38 million people. This is a good thing, right? This is partly why we're, if we look at history and the word, we're so rich. Um, we throw probably more food than this away, to be honest. But 12 or 108 billion serves 38 million people just for food. Okay. In comparison, the Myanmar and the Democratic. Republic of Congo combined for 135 million people over three times and the total gross domestic product of those nations is 109 billion or about roughly what we give away in food stamps alone. This is not about guilt. We are blessed and that's a good thing. And if we follow the principles of the Bible, we ought to be successful. The question here and what we're looking at today is what do we do with that success? So, what is wealthy? Are we exonerating ourselves of excess because we do not have an 80-foot yacht, a Lamborghini, or a house in Martha's Vineyard? Are we blind to being the modern equivalent of Laodicea? So off-kilter due to our inherent wealth that we cannot even see it anymore? Do we need to make a paradigm shift 
as Christ followers based on this evidence within our minds on what is wealthy. According to the world, the word, and history, riches not being concerned with food, clothing, shelter, and material possessions are increasing. So most of us are rich. Question number two, does the word of God truly endorse material wealth for personal gratification under the new covenant? We'll start in Matthew 6, 19, where Christ tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. In Acts 44, 43 to 46, we can see, we can get a glimpse of the first body of Christ. They were selling possessions, had all things in common, breaking bread, teaching with joy, and no one had need. And there was a contrast also as Christ walked. There was the rich young ruler who was told to give it all away. But Zacchaeus only gave away 50%, and salvation came to his household, plus paying four times any wrongs he was aware of. What other examples can we see after Christ? How many of the apostles enjoyed comfortable and wealthy living? I think a great way to examine this is to ask ourselves, because this is, this is between you and God. What will you stand in front of Christ and be proud of someday? Because you will stand in front of him. Picture in your own life, Jesus did you see that vehicle, my promotion, bonuses, the lake house and pool? How many likes and views I had? This collection of trinkets from my retirement travels? How quickly I beat that video game? What I want you to do is take 30 seconds now. I want you to bow your heads and consider of your current money and time expenditures. What will you be proud to present and what? Will you be ashamed for standing in front of the hosts of heaven? Understand, my brethren, I am not trying to be critical. My wife and I bought a new van in 2013. It would have been easy to be viewed as materialistic. Maybe we overspent, but today we still have that van and get zero cool points in the pickup line at school when we get our kids. We don't look successful in the eyes of a judging world. But we can take heart, there are blessings designed for us to enjoy, to use in need, and to worship our Creator through. But this is a critical point of self-examination in the process of working out our salvation and creating mature fruit for our Lord and Father. What will you be excited to give account to Jesus for? Question number three, what does it look like to deny ourselves, really denying our flesh, in regards to earthly goods and worldly pursuits? 
If we are really honest, it looks like Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding a pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Another critical question we must ask ourselves, do our possessions and pursuits own us? Or do we own them for practical and kingdom use? See, if I go buy a toy tomorrow, and I can say I'm more or as guilty than anyone, is that it? All is good, I use it at my convenience? No. I already consume monies for my pleasure, or I'm paying a loan and consuming in the future. I am obligated to clean, wax, upgrade. I have to insure it, plate it, maintain it, store it. It now has the potential to own me and not only become my identity, but choke, choke, choke the fruit that I would have otherwise produced with that time and with that money. Have you considered the true costs of your earthly goods your hobbies, and your pursuits in life? Are they choking your ability to bring fruit to maturity as we are clearly warned in the third type of soil? Working demanding jobs, putting in overtime, tithing less or not at all, sacrificing the ability to get alone with God because you are tired and busy. No time to lead children and spouses or care for households. No time to find your Lazarus. We know that they are out there, right? Can we use the excuse that nobody laid them at the end of our driveways? Because they're not going to. Are we losing time with God, family time, and failing to love others to keep up with unnecessary spending habits, hobbies, toys, and worldly ambitions? Examine how many problems we incur in our lives are really just the fruit of chasing material gains, possessions, conveniences, or statuses. What is Christ's portion under the new covenant? We already heard his words about denying self, so let's hear from Paul in Philippians 3, 7 to 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The New Testament gives a clear picture of what denying self and loving Christ above all looks like. Therefore, in the weakness of our flesh, we must soberly consider a couple of things in front of us. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, Paul speaks of a thorn, a messenger of Satan that he 
asked Christ to remove three times, but was told it needed to remain to keep him from exalting himself. Peter was called Satan directly by Christ and said, get behind me, after chasing the thoughts and the things of man. Are we stronger than these two men who talked to Christ? That we may stop examining ourselves well and often on this topic? To conclude, we looked at what rich really looks like in context. We asked if personal gratification through wealth is perpetuated under the new covenant. And we asked what it means to deny ourselves in the light of wealth. To summarize, the vast majority of this land is worldly rich in comparison to the present world and especially history. Therefore, we must pay close attention to the warnings of being worldly rich that saturate the New Testament and pose risk to us, bringing mature fruit. We need to abandon our current broad view of wealth that means millions and billions. The New Testament, the first church and the disciples do not indicate worldly wealth to be the net result of following Christ. Otherwise, the disciples would have been kings, not martyrs. Don't you think? True wealth, true riches, true, true riches are in the spirit and last forever. In light of the first two conclusions, the final is that we need to examine ourselves well and often. In light of the Holy Spirit and scripture to ensure that we are not being lulled into a fruitless sleep. Having the fruit of the spirit choked by worldly riches and pursuits of a prideful life. Again, there are real blessings meant to be enjoyed. But we must be mindful the riches and blessings of our Father are spiritual and eternal. Anything material in our lives that are hindering growth or fruit cannot be from the Father. Again, I challenge you to abandon your current view of wealth, most of us are already rich in temporal goods. Examine your life today and continually. What will you be proud of in front of the host of heaven? Recall the parable. Just burying the talent and being neutral is evil. My brothers, we don't get a pass on this. What can you change, sell, resign today to increase or produce eternal fruit for your Savior, starting with your family and moving outwards? Are we denying the flesh so that we have the time and money to eat the bread of life daily to grow and produce mature fruit for the one who saved us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for loving us. I pray that your spirit would meet each one of us where we are to prune us and conform us to the image of your son, that we would see through the lies and the temptations of the world and use the blessings that you have given us in their full glory for the kingdom of heaven, that we would spend our time and our resources in a way that would glorify you and show that you are our all in all as we sing.
Thank you, Father, for loving us, and we praise you in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Praise God, and may we all be strong, spirit-filled, holy worshipers in our stewardship, in our finances. That's a challenging word. I am, I am convicted and challenged. To introduce our second speaker, also named Zach, also Zach H., also with a beard, but different haircut. Zach Hill, married to Michelle and among the newest dads in our church family of daughter Elena. Zach is a Grace grad who has been actively serving and seeking to develop his ministry skills, whatever God may call him and his family to do. Uh, last year, he worked for the Bowen Center with kids from Claypool Elementary School, and this year, Claypool snagged him up and hired him directly. Well, Zach and Michelle are also valuable members of our youth staff, and uh, Zach has been the teacher every Sunday morning of our teenage uh, communities of training. And for the last several weeks, he's been going through the book, book of Revelation and the topics of spiritual warfare and demons. And I know my kids have gotten a lot out of that, and we've had a lot of good conversations. Uh, that has uh, inspired his direction for today, which is perfect, because if we're ever going to deny ourselves with our finances and be close to God in that aspect of our life, then we must know that we have a spiritual enemy and how to do spiritual battle with that enemy. And so let's, uh, let's welcome Zach. Zach Hill, please come up and challenge us once again. Thanks, Zach. I know many people here are familiar with sports of various kinds, soccer, basketball, baseball, golf, tennis, anything and everything. There's a lot of similarities across the board with each sport. Um, one of the biggest parts is knowing who you play, right? Knowing who you're playing against. Recently, the NBA Finals wrapped up. The Golden State Warriors beat the Boston Celtics. And to use them as an example, there's a lot of times where each teams have to understand who they're playing against, right? The Golden State Warriors have a couple of really great shooters, so the Celtics have to be able to understand that they have to play defense further out. They can't be as close to the basket. Um, which makes things harder. There's more passing lanes, all that kind of stuff. So the Boston Celtics have to be able to adapt with who they're playing. You know, you might have to adapt if you have taller opponents or, or smaller ones or teams, again, that are a lot stronger or if they play with a lot more dribbling moves. Um, are they better at defense? Are they a better at offense? You have to be able to understand all of these little things about each team to be able to best play against them. And if you don't, if you just kind of show up on game day and they're like, all right, let's just kind of see what happens, it's probably not going to go super well. There's entire careers that are fixated on this, on scouting, on knowing who you're playing. And just as that's, that's there for sports, for basketball and high school and, you know, professional, we need to have that in our spiritual life as well, right? We need to be able to have a good and proper view of what Satan and his demons can and cannot do. And that is what I'm here to share with you guys today. I'm here to give you a good and proper view of what Satan can and cannot do. Rather than getting or even our ideas from TV, even like little things like the movie Hercules, right? There's Hades, there's the underworld, that's kind of the equivalent of Satan and, and hell. But in those movies and in, in Greek mythology, it's Satan, or it's, it's Hades as the ruler of the underworld. Hades is in charge, it is his domain. That is not true in the, the eyes of a Christian. Satan is not in charge of hell. God is still sovereign and in control of hell. 
But we think about these things and we watch these movies and like we notice it and we're like, oh, that doesn't really sound right, but we leave it there. We don't go anything past it. We don't really understand. And then we just apply what this you know, movie or other religion or other mythology is telling us and it's the same for ours, which that's just not true. So I'm here today to be able to help you guys understand some more truths and some more proper way of thinking about what Satan and his, his demons cannot do. So with that, we'll be in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. This is the armor of God. So if you'd like to turn there, you can. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Our first main point, the battle we, the battle we fight is one we don't see. In the first 10 through 13 verses, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We see right away that this fight is one we don't see. It is in the spiritual realm. It is one that Satan is right where he wants to be, where he doesn't get to be seen. So we have to be able to understand a lot of these things that we can't just see with our own eyes, right? We have to be able to understand all these things that we have to be able to read about and understand so we can fight against what Satan wants. And before we really, really dive into to our scripture here and to a lot of these other ideas, I want to kind of give this preface um, and also understanding about what demons can kind of do. Demon possession is a very real thing. Um, it's scary. It's, it's real. It's true. It's awful. But here, here's, a, here's something for you. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are a born-again Christian, you cannot be possessed by another spirit, right? This, the Holy Spirit already resides in you, and we know this. The Holy Spirit is stronger than Satan, right? Sin is a weakening thing. Sin is a weakening device that Satan uses. So therefore, if it is weakening, it's not going to be stronger than God. So Satan will not be able to overcome the Holy Spirit inside of you. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that Satan can't influence things around you, right? That is, that is something that is true. But a demon cannot possess you if you have the Holy Spirit inside you. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of peace um, as we talk about a very strange and, and kind of scary topic. But again, this fight is one that we do not see. This fight is one that we need to be prepared for. And our first defense for that is with truth, truth and righteousness that we see in verse 14. Verse 14 says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. We need to know truth to be able to discern what truth is and what truth is not. Or what, what, is, a, what is truth and what is a lie. We have to be able to know the truth with the belt of truth to be able to understand, again, these things that Satan could be coming at us with a lie. There's a man named Joseph Smith. He is the, the man who started the Mormon religion. He got a vision from an angel named Moroni. And this angel gave him the basis of the religion. He gave them, it's a very long story, but he, he revealed the Book of Mormon to them. Mormons use this book as canon, as like, um, canon is just like what like the official, official book is, right? The Bible is our canon. Roman Catholics use the, apo or the apocryphy as a canon for them as well. But he, the, the angel gave him um, this vision, and he, he did all these different things. And what's wrong about this is that the Mormon religion does not view the Trinity as the Trinity as we Christians do. Mormons themselves typically 
will say that they are Christian, but they don't believe in the full deity of Christ. They don't believe in the Trinity. Again, they have different books that are added into um, that conflict with what our Bible says. And why is this wrong, right? Why is this wrong is because Joseph Smith did not know his Bible. He did not know that in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, Paul is talking about false teachers, and he says this, For such people are apostles, a deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants also, that is, sorry. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Joseph Smith did not understand that there are angels out there that are not angels of God, that they are angels of the demon, of demons, that are angels of Satan. He believed this because it was an angel saying he was from God, and he just believed it. He didn't know the Bible like he was supposed to. He didn't have the belt of truth equipped um, at that moment. So we have to be able to understand that Satan can do a lot of things, again, masquerade himself as an angel of light, which sounds kind of scary, but we'll talk about more about how we can defend against that. But again, right now, we have to be able to know truth to be able to discern what truth is and what, what a lie is not. Because if we don't, then we're going to get caught up just like Joseph Smith did. And then he has led hundreds and thousands of millions of people down the wrong, down the wrong path. We see also in verse 14 that there is the breastplate of righteousness. Satan wants to dis- distance us from God with sin, right? He wants to make our sanctification process, our becoming like God as faulty and to stall it as much as possible. He wants you to to stay stuck in your sins. He wants you to stay stuck in the lies that he can tell you so that you don't have the righteousness covering you. He knows your weaknesses. He can exploit them. But if we have righteousness covering us, joy, peace, kindness, we have all these different things that are making us like God, we'll be able to combat what Satan is trying to do um, in making us unrighteous like himself. Satan wants to unsettle us. He wants us to be uncertain in our faith with God, which leads us into the gospel of peace. Also, I'm sorry, I think I missed my main point. We need to know, oh no, I said it. We need to know truth to discern what to do. Our third point, knowing our enemy leads to peace. Verse 15 says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Satan wants to unsettle us in what God has done for us. Satan, or God bridged the gap for us. Satan wants us to, to think that that gap's too big. Satan will never be at peace with God, right? He has chosen his path of sin. He has chosen his path of hell. And he will always be fighting against God. And what's kind of crazy is that he knows he's going to lose, right? Revelation has prophesied that. And I don't know about you guys, but whenever I know I'm going to fail at something, I don't really like it, and I get a little antsy. I get a little anxious and stressful. I can only imagine what Satan must feel here, knowing that he will be tormented in hell for eternity. And that's where Satan wants to keep you as well. Satan wants you to, keep, to stay in these, these um, moments of stress and anxiety. And that's not to say stress and anxiety is bad, Right? There's some of it is from Satan. There's some of it's just from natural consequences when you have deadlines at work and you want to make sure you get everything done, right? Like those are just things that happen. But there are times where Satan wants to use stress and anxiety against you. And I think he can even use it in these small moments such as our personalities. I'm going to talk about my wife and I for a second. I myself am a person who doesn't really like to talk. I 
honestly, if it was like preferably up to me, I would not be here this morning. I'd be living in the middle of the woods somewhere out by myself. And now that I'm married, my daughter and my wife would be with us, which we also, I caved a little bit. I said we could live on the beach rather than the woods. So Michelle, Michelle said she'd come with me if I, if I said we could live on the beach. Anyway, I am not a talker. I don't really like to talk. I don't really want to be in front of people. But God calls me something higher to that. I would like to stick to myself. I would like to do what I want. I'm going to share a story that's not, it's not the most admirable thing, but it's something that I did when I was a very young Christian. And unfortunately, just a few years ago in college. So there was one weekend um, where I let my personality get the best of me. I did not talk to anybody basically the entire weekend. So my statistic is I went to Burger King a lot that weekend and chicken nuggets were like 10 for like a dollar. And I had about 70 chicken nuggets that weekend. And I spoke less words to people than I ate chicken nuggets that weekend. (laughs) And half of that was just saying, hey, can I have 10 chicken nuggets, please? And all that kind of stuff. And please and thank you. So almost all of my words was ordering the food and then leaving and not actually talking to people. And that's where, and again, it's a funny story. And I was proud of it when I was in college. And now I'm realizing that's just so bad. But Here we are, and God's going to use it for a funny story now. But again, I myself would love to do that every single week, and I would love to stay in my house. I would love to not do anything. I would love to just be on my own. But God calls me to something greater than that. He calls me to be in front of you this morning. And on the flip side, right, is me as a a very extreme introvert. On the flip side, my wife is the exact opposite of me, if you guys do not know her very well. She loves to talk, and I love that about her. Um, And people like her. I don't have any problem with people that like to talk and talk a lot. That is not a problem. I think the problem comes then when people who like to talk a lot don't talk about things that are good, right? Whether that's gossip or other things. So I'm not telling people to stop talking. I'm telling you to talk about better things, right? Talk about what God is doing in your life. I don't really care what you had for dinner last week, but tell me what God's doing. I'll listen all day. So we each have parts of our personality that seem so, which are core to ourselves, but we stick to them. And so people who don't like to talk just observe and watch everything else that happen, happen around them. People who talk a lot don't always talk about real things. And It's not either one is better. It's not one is worse than the other. We both have things that we struggle with and we have to move past, but Satan wants us to keep us there. He wants us to stay in those those fears of going too deep or going out of our comfort zone. Satan wants to keep us in those fears and he wants to unsettle us once again. He wants us to not live in peace with what the gospel of Jesus has provided for us. Well, all these ways are attacks that Satan has, has come at us, we will move on to the shield of faith, which is in verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So a lot of what we talked about is, has been attacks of what Satan has come at us. So knowing our enemy leads to protection. And again, we're, we're learning about Satan and what he wants to do right now. We're going to keep moving with that idea. So Satan and his demons do not know the future, right? We know that in Mark 13, 32, that God the Father is the only one who knows the time and end of the world. And again, in that passage, it's talking about specifically about the end times, but it's talking, um, it can be applied specifically also to the fact that demons cannot know the future. But if you've ever watched TV shows and movies, I have a, a, a TV show that comes to mind for myself, Lost. I love that show. There's a couple parts in there where it's like a psychic. And the psychic knows, you know, they know things they shouldn't know. And, you know, in the movies, they don't talk about demon possession. But, and for our sake, there's times where psychics in this world are possessed and they can know things that they probably shouldn't know. But it's not that they know the future or things that happen around or like outside of them. 
They just might have simply observed something. So you're at the psychic. They say, I know what you ate for breakfast this morning, and I know that you had a whole pizza that was supposed to be for lunch today, right? They know something crazy that was not supposed to happen. But a demon could have just simply observed that happened. They can be anywhere and everywhere in the spiritual realm that we don't see with our eyes. So we have to be able to know what demons can and cannot do. Once again, we have to be able to know the power that God limits them to. Um, and that's no different than what TV, or it is different than what TV can tell us at times. Our next component of armor is the helmet of salvation and the sword of truth in verse 17. And this is one of my favorite parts, or this is my favorite part. Verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our main point here is knowing God's word is our best weapon, which that's been a big theme about all of this. We have to be able to know what happens in here to be able to fight against Satan. But the helmet of salvation, Satan wants to attack us with what we should know as truth. He wants to send us lies. He wants to tell us things that are not true. Women, he wants you to believe that your, your body's not good enough. He wants you to stay stuck on the fact that you need to be skinnier or have longer hair or fill in the blank with what. Men, he wants to attack you with the fact that you need to do everything on your own, that you can do it everything on your own. Those are lies from Satan that we get told that we want to be stuck in, that he wants us to be stuck in so we can't move forward. The helmet of salvation brings us security in what we know of God. We know that God died on the cross for us because of God's love for us. He wants these, Satan wants these lies to penetrate our minds and to stay stuck there rather than resting in what Scripture tells us about us. Our main source of offense here, the sword of truth, this, the word of God, which again, that's been, our, that's been a big theme about all of this, and if there's a reason it's a big thing about all this, it's because we have to ha know how to attack Satan, right? We don't want to just stay and be huddled in a corner and let him pound and pound and pound against us. We have to be able to fight. And knowing God's word is our best weapon. But here's the thing. Satan wants us to be apathetic. Apathetic, which means a lack of feeling. No, there's no hate. There's no love. It is a lack of anything. He wants us to be apathetic towards our Bible. He loves it when there's dust on your Bible. He loves it when it's sitting in the corner he loves it when it's placed out on the furniture for a decorative piece when your friends come over. He loves it when it is not a focal point of your life. But what can we do to combat that? We read our Bibles. We know that when we read our Bibles, we'll be able to understand these things about what Satan can and cannot do. I didn't know about Satan masquerading as an angel of light. Like, it makes sense. Like, I kind of knew that idea, but I didn't know it was in Scripture. I didn't know my Bible well enough. Well enough. I was am a weak Christian at times, but if we don't read our Bible, we're going to continue to fit that weak Christian mindset, and Satan's got us right where he wants him, or he, Satan's got us right where he wants us. But we can become strong. We can become strong in the Word, strong in what God wants for us, just by simply reading our Bible. And it's not really that simple. Like, it's a hard thing to do. It's hard to discipline yourself to read every single day, but that's what we have to do. And if we read, if we know our Bible, we can fight against with what Satan is telling us who here now that i'm older i understand how kind of crazy it is and how wrong it is but anyway in in, in theory or in short and in spoiler alert for a lot of people who haven't seen it um, a man named frank abagnale um, this is based on a true story as well frank abagnale was a world-class liar thief um, and eventually he begins to work for the fbi to work off his prison sentence and he is able to or he has been brought a bunch of checks that are fakes 
And he can tell what's a fake check by how much it weighs, how much it, or what it smells like. If the ink is just a little bit too raised or not, he can tell what is a fake check and what is a real check. And he only knows that because he has studied the real check like there's no tomorrow. He, that was his job, right? His job was to lie and study what things should be so he can exploit them. So he studied the real deal. And just as, again, this world-class liar, Frank Abagnale, studied a, a check, we have to be able to study our Bibles so we know that when a vision from an angel that conflicts with what God's word tells us, we can say that's not true. We can say that, oh, wow, this seems really cool. This seems like it's from God. It's an angel, right? It's got to be true. No, we can go back to First or Second Corinthians 11, 14, and 15 and understand that Satan can masquerade himself as an angel of light. So when we know these things, when we use the sword of truth, the Bible, to attack Satan, we can attack what he um, is saying and lying to us. When we study scripture, we can combat Satan's lies with truth. And that's what we leave with here today. Our application is we must read our Bibles and we must pray. Verse 18 says, and, in, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. These are probably the two most important spiritual disciplines that a Christian needs, but they're the two most neglected. I myself haven't, didn't really have that much of a, um, a disciplined prayer and Bible reading life until I, did I, until I did the men's leadership class. And I realized I was going to get docked points if I didn't read my Bible every day. So I was like, all right, well, we're going to start now. But it's helped me. I've, I've been a couple months now out of that. I'm home every day and I read my Bible every single day. And then when I forget in the mornings, I do it at nighttime like there was yesterday. And I've, I've just now started that discipline and I'm 25 now and I've been married for two years, almost two years, year and a half, sorry, not two years, not even a year and a half. Sorry, 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 sorry. It seems like that. When, we, when you have a kid in your first year of marriage, it kind of seems that way, I think. Sorry. But yeah, I've been married. I've been leading a family now, and I've just now started recently reading my Bible. And I was a weak Christian, and I still am at times, but I'm growing, I'm changing, and I'm, I'm thwarting what Satan wants from me. And again, those are our two biggest things that we can take away from this, is to read our Bible and know what Scripture says, and to be able to pray about it and pray against Satan and his attacks for all the Lord's people. Because if we don't read, we can't know Satan, we can't know our enemy, and we can't properly properly fight for God if we don't know what Satan is trying to do. And that is what I leave with you today. This is how we combat Satan and against the spiritual forces of evil in the realm that we do not see. Let us pray.